Amen. Please be seated. Please take out your insert or turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. We are at verse 17 of that chapter. We'll look at the last half of the chapter. This is where Isaiah is still uh, recording the words of God, the Word of God, you might say, as he responds to the cry for him to come visit. Uh, They admitted their sins and they felt as orphans, and he says, here I am. And he corrects them and reminds them of the sin that has caused his discipline to come upon them. But then he comes to verse 17, and we're at the second last chapter of the book, and he gives a picture. It's a, it's a brief picture. It's a glimpse of the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom plan. And it's, it's a difficult one to, on one level, interpret because of the particulars and our desire to kind of know details, but it's not difficult to understand when you see it in its general sense. He's making a very clear picture of what things will be like ultimately for those who are in him. It's meant to bring comfort. In fact, it's important at the outset when we read passages that give us a glimpse of the heavenly state or the eternal state, we might call it what heaven is like, as we say, um, it's important for us to remember that the doctrine of heaven um, is limited in Scripture because, I believe it's safe to say, our minds Um, In our fallen state, even though we're redeemed by Christ, um, we still, until glorification, until we're given a renewed mind that can handle all the depths and the riches of what there is to reveal about God, um, only limited pictures can be given to us that we might appreciate it. And usually when we read about heaven, uh, and this text is an example, it usually says the things that it won't be like compared to now. That's the best way we can understand. But there are multiple benefits to thinking about contemplating the majority of our existence. Have you ever thought about it like that? I mean, we think this life we're living is a long time, and I know it feels that way, but relative to eternity, it's really nothing, right? And so a glimpse of heaven, which is sometimes incomprehensible to us, a glimpse of heaven and what awaits will help us, I would say, in three ways. And I'll repeat this as we go because I think it's important. First of all, a glimpse of heaven will help us prioritize what this temporary life we're living means. Um, It helps us to prioritize our day in this short life. What's truly important up against eternity? The second thing that contemplating heaven, as Scripture teaches it, uh, the second thing that will be assisted is our endurance of the many miseries. That sounds extreme, but I think you'll know what I mean. The many miseries of this life. Now, we're fortunate to live in a time where there's so many inventions and technologies and things that God's granted over time, money that we have to stave off some of the effects of sin. But you know and I know none of us are untouched from the the pains, the afflictions, the difficulties, the turmoil that comes into this life because we're living in a fallen world and we still feel the effects of our own sin and the sin around us. So contemplating heaven in the way it will be ultimately helps us endure this kind of, this period that we're living in. It reminds us that these trials are light and momentary in comparison to heaven, just as Paul says in Corinthians. The third thing that studying heaven or considering a passage like this will help us with, it gives us a picture of the absolute majestic sovereignty of God. And that alone promotes obedience, and it draws us to give him the worship and the praise he deserves. So those are just three of several reasons one could probably line out about why 
the study of heaven is so important. Sometimes one is more at work than the others. Hopefully all three are in our minds. But I wanted you to think of that as we began to look at this passage, which has some difficulty in its particulars, but not in its general sense. I think you'll agree. So here now as I read God's word, and I say this often, but I want to say it again. It's God's word. It's not man's word. It's what he has breathed out through his chosen prophets and preserved so that we may sit here today and hear a word from heaven. Otherwise, we'd be wandering aimlessly, and the last thing you want to do is count on my wisdom. You need the word of God's wisdom. I need the word of God's wisdom. So we go to it and ask God to help us understand it, that it would change our lives. I'll start reading in verse 17 of Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who's, who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt Or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, you have never failed to keep a promise to us, your people. The sending of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins is the ultimate promise kept. We come to you as a body of believers with a diversity of issues in our midst. We need help seeing what is eternal and what is temporal. We can become slaves to silly earthly stuff and priorities and events and completely lose sight of what is everlasting. With a glimpse of heaven, can you please call our lives to the right order of priorities? We can become weighed down by the the miseries and sufferings of this life, sickness, mental anguish, broken relationships, persecution, all sorts of hardships. They can make us forget what you have for us. And we become weary and we become weak. With a vision of your eternal plan, would you grant us perseverance for today? Finally, we think far too little, if we're honest. Far too little of your sovereign greatness. And in our tradition, we toss around the word sovereign all the time. But Lord, cause us to pause and contemplate your all-powerfulness. It is not the kings of earth who determine the course of things. It is you the true and living God. With a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, will you draw us to a deeper worship and praise of you? I pray this through Christ, your great and faithful servant and our Savior. 
Amen. Of the three benefits that I listed for contemplating this biblical teaching about heaven or the eternal state of glory, as it's called, I think the one that was most relevant for the people who first received this prophecy would be the second. They were under the misery of their own sin and what it had brought, the oppression of a a foreign people upon them. In fact, most of them, for the course of their lives, always knew pressure from without of their nation. They heard the promises of God, but there's a reason the wording of the prayer that went through Isaiah was as it was. They thought they were orphans. They felt like God did not care. That was their sense. That was the experience they would describe. And it wasn't without cause. They had stuff that they built that was pillaged and stolen. Um, even when they built up their temple, it was pillaged. It, was, it felt like nothing they had or worked for would ever be theirs. It would be taken from them. They saw, through the course of their history, many deaths, much death, uh, premature death. And that's a word that's interesting because really death itself you would consider premature after the fall, not intended initially. But young people dying. Um, all sorts of suffering and strain, that's what they would have known. And so when Isaiah comes to give his word, he gives a word of honesty, confrontation, but he gives comfort here with this ultimate picture. Now maybe you've caught it. The people first receiving this are getting the promise of eternal life or eternity and what it would look like in the consummated, full-blown kingdom of God as he works out his plan to to bless them in eternity, the ultimate Canaan, if you will, the ultimate promised land, But the people listening would not experience that, at least not in their life. Certainly any believer who dies enters into this peace immediately, and time probably doesn't, you know, drag on waiting for that final consummation. But for those who are still here, we need this word. We need this reminder of what God's working things towards, and it helps us. Because every every generation that's heard this passage before us has not, unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, and I'm not saying he can't, But they haven't seen that either for thousands of years. But they know it's true and they know it's coming, just like all the prophecies of Jesus' first coming. And it came to pass. We know it will come to pass that he'll come again. And he'll set things right. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth that will occupy as his redeemed. They'll make him fully glad and satisfied and all his glory will be shown through it. That helps us if we step out of the situation we're in for a moment and think about how our difficulties and afflictions are really light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that awaits through what God is doing. We should recapture a sense of awe about what is to come. An example that I could give that you would all relate with through your studies of our country's history would be that of the Negro spiritual, the African spiritual. I spent a couple days perusing. There's hundreds of them. It's actually the, the most voluminous part of American folk song comes from this genre. And most of it was kind of proliferated after the Civil War and all these things got written down and put to music. These, these spirituals that were written by African slaves in America over a hundred year period in particular where these really come. Where they were believers, they trusted Christ, but their only existence was slavery and a difficult, terrible slavery at that for the vast majority of them. So they would write these songs about their Christian faith And you can see what's centered upon consistently. Some popular ones that you know. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. I saw a band of angels coming after me. 
coming for to carry me home. If you get back to heaven before I do, you tell all my friends I'll be coming there too. It's a common theme, and you can understand why. Heaven, the reality of heaven, the eternal state, is what held them in their difficulty, in their affliction. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. That's become kind of a folk, even pop song, that doesn't really dwell on what the gist of the song means. It says, Although you see me going long so, O yes, Lord, I have my troubles here below. O yes, Lord. It's a song longing for the eternal state, helping them to survive in the immediate. Steal away to Jesus. Steal away to Jesus. I ain't going long to stay here. Deep down in my heart, bound for Canaan land, now let me fly. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. By the way, if I'm at melancholy today, it's because I listened to two days of spirituals in preparation for thinking about this. Because they're singing constantly about, they're not saying how bad it is necessarily, but how good it will be there, which helps them with how bad it is here. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Oh, what a beautiful city over the crossing on my journey now ain't going to tarry here. Not tied to here, knowing this isn't what it's all about. This isn't even the, the most of it. Now, what happens here matters by God's design. But the ultimate reality is yet to come. Michael, row your boat ashore. Hallelujah. Sister, help to trim the sail. Hallelujah. The river is deep and the river is wide. Hallelujah. Green pastures on the other side. Hallelujah. I'd say over 75% of these spirituals, um, the main focus is heaven, and the other 25% has a line or two about it. And I was comparing to our hymnal, I can only find 13 hymns that I would say heaven or the eternal state or glory would be considered the central theme. Multiple hymns have a line or two. All the hymns we are singing today, if you look at them, one or two lines in each of them refers to the eternal state or to, to glory. It's not to say that we don't have miseries. They're probably not on par with what the African slaves dealt with or other people who penned these kinds of songs that focused on heaven. Um, there are other reasons why heaven and the doctrine of heaven is helpful. I, I line them out for us. But I think that the more we contemplate what God's kingdom consummation will be, at least in its general sense, the less tied we will be to earth. Now, I don't mean so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. I don't mean that. Just that as we understand God's final plan for recreating, for consummating all things, that will give us a sense of endurance. It will also give us that sense of awe about who God is and what he's doing and what we're looking forward to. It's helpful in this regard, and I think this would have helped the original audience the same way I'm describing to you. The benefit we have, though, is the doctrine of heaven is just in its embryonic form here in Isaiah. If you read some of the other prophets, you can build up a little more of what the, the full picture looks like. Then you come to the New Testament, and there's other references to the new heavens and the new earth, like in First Peter, certainly in Revelation. We'll look at a little of that. The Bible on the whole gives us a clearer picture. But even still, it's a bit general. I just think it's too big for us to completely wrap our minds around. What we have in front of us is God's revelation about his ultimate plan through Christ. I say through Christ because in chapter 11 of Isaiah, he starts to say the exact words we're reading here, and it's the messianic kingdom. And then throughout Isaiah, it builds the case around the faithful servant Jesus. So when you come to the consummation, it almost can go without saying that this is accomplished through his servant, who we ought to be united to. And then that makes more sense throughout the scripture. I say that for context as we look at it here. So God's plan for life and for redemption culminates with him creating or recreating a new heaven and a new earth 
and it's for his satisfaction, it's for his glory, and the beauty is that will benefit us. We'll glory in that. Let's look at the passage starting at verse 17. You see the introduction or the explanation of what God is going to do. Um, All the stuff that you see around, he says to the Israelites, he's going to reverse this, he's going to change this, he's going to renew this. It culminates with him creating this eternal place of joy, and he's creating with it a people who will bring him gladness. Verse 17, for behold, I, God speaking, create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's hard to imagine. We think of what we're living is so important right now, and it has importance. But in particular, the people here are suffering, and so these former sufferings, some commentators point to, is, is probably the real focus here. These things that are consuming your mind and your anxieties, they will not be remembered or come to mind. But even on the whole, let's just be honest, when we see the glory of God in its fullness, what we know now will just be overwhelmed by that powerful thing. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. This is a work of God. God's doing this. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Look at the parallelism here. Verse 18. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. The land is Jerusalem, the place, and then the people that occupy it will be a joy. And look at the parallelism now. 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. This repetition shows how or what the main focus of this whole thing is. That's the the key here. The details sometimes people get too wrapped up in. Um, But the goal, what God's working toward is, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And Jerusalem here is thought of in terms of the Jewish people. The scripture unpacks this to realize this is a part, a small thing, to represent the whole of his people. He does this often. And here it is, a picture of what will be. He's talking about his people on the large, those united to him through Christ, not just an ethnic group. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will be glad in my people. This is the work that he is working towards. This is the the, the bottom line of his final consummation that he will create, that we will enjoy in Christ. Interesting if you compare this. I won't take long to do this, but I know those of you who have been students of Revelation, one of the honest errors that Christians make in Bible reading and interpretation, and I totally understand why this is the case, but because it's so fantastical and American evangelicalism loves to make a big deal out of the end times and Revelation and in books go out uh, volume after volume of surmising what it'll look like and they get just eaten up off the shelf. Uh, But in reality, reading Revelation before you read Isaiah doesn't make much sense. I remember when I went to Bible college, it was a Bible college that focused heavily on the end times. I love it. I go there again. I'm just saying uh, that when they make you take Daniel Revelation before you take a class on Genesis, it kind of tells you, you know, what their bent is. So we're going to go right to the end times. And, and you learn a bunch of things. They, they tell you what everything needs in Revelation, and then it kind of taints the way you look at the rest of Scripture. Because you didn't start at Genesis and work through Um, You started what the end times are supposed to look like according to somebody. Um, But when you compare Isaiah here and then think of what you know of Revelation, you get a a nice picture of the main point, the eternal state of things. We're reading here, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But then in Revelation 21, we have a little more color to it. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So Isaiah is given a certain vision. Then John, many years later, is given a a vision too with a little more color to it. John says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, the Jerusalem we're reading about here in Isaiah, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. A more colorful picture of what we just read. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, do you see why you have to be careful about technicalities when looking at these two things and trying to write out every detail of what it'll look like? Maybe it's just so that our minds are way too small to handle all of that, but there's enough consistency to let us know what's going to happen. It's true. I know that won't stop the books from being written, but I hope it helps us to not lose sight of the big picture, what's important. And really what it drives us to is to ask what question. Hey, This is complex, but I know one thing. I better be united to Christ. Because that is the ultimate answer to all these things. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, this promotes a question that I hope you're asking. And we can ask of the text. We can only get so many answers here. But if you look at the first part of verse 19, he talks about... This Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, spoken of by John in Revelation, it evokes the question, what will our existence in heaven be like? Certainly not wrong to ask that question. The Scripture gives us some inclinations, and it would be helpful for us for the reasons I mentioned. I mean, it's helpful for us to know a bit about heaven. It helps us put things into priority now. It helps us to endure the difficulties that we face, and it draws us to worship and obey. No more misery and distress is what's alluded to here. We see that clearly. We know that's what's being promised. No more interruption by death. This is a huge theme to understand this passage. Uh, The interruption of death, which is confronting all of our lives in some fashion, even though this side of technology, we've mitigated several things, staved off others, we all know there's still that interruption. No one lives that long. And we're all amazed when someone lives very long. A hundred years is really long, we think. What's the quality of life at that point, right? It's it's just short, the life we live. And so when we come to this and we see these promises of no more interruptions from death, it's overwhelming to us. It's amazing to us. That alone, just that feature, would change our outlook on everything, our experience of everything. No more insecurities, the things that make us anxious, the things that make us worry, they're gone. A restoration of paradise, that harmony before the fall entered, before man sinned. That kind of harmony, but better yet. Look at the second part of verse 19. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Somewhere on the earth, in fact, many places on the earth right now, is the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I promise, and you know it, and I know it. It doesn't leave this earth with all its sin, with all its misery, with all its difficulty. It's all over. But the new heavens and the new earth that God puts us to dwell in. There won't be this. So much death, so much weeping in Israel when they first received this word for sure. Much suffering. Premature death was the norm, especially in those days. Verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but just a few days 
or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, be careful not to read this too literally, and there's a lot of discussion. I'll allude to it in just a moment. Wait a minute. Talking about death in heaven? What does this mean? Most scholars will say it's trying to give the original audience a sense of, of something they wouldn't know, the idea that there wouldn't be premature death, just to speak in terms of an ideal so they would be gripped with the reality of how bad things are because people don't live very long and there's so much mortality. And we know the heavenly picture in Revelation he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. So this isn't meant to be carried out to that. However, it's a good time to mention a little bit of the discussion that Christians have about this when you come to this passage. You've no doubt heard uh, the debates about the, the millennium, as it's called. I'm sure you come from different backgrounds. Everybody has an opinion on it. Americans think there's only one view of that, but that view, the premillennial view, is actually very new compared to the other ones. Everyone claims the first, the apostles held one view. All three views of this do that. Um, but to understand what is all meant by this and put it into perspective, um, the millennium comes from Revelation where there's a thousand years mentioned. And people will take that. It's the only time it mentions it in those terms. It's this, this golden era of God's uh, Christ's reign. Now, there's discussion among Christians about what this means. And so the different terms for it are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Now, don't go to sleep when I'm talking about this. I know this stuff may not be interesting to you, but it is. Um, here's the reason. It's talking about in relationship to the return of Jesus, when will this golden era be, this millennium? Those who are premillennialists will say Jesus comes before, could happen at any time. Some of them will map out exactly when it'll happen, but he'll come, then he'll sit on a literal throne like David, and then for a thousand years he'll reign. They'll say this passage refers to that millennial reign. Jesus comes, and then what we're reading here is that millennial reign, and then it it kind of bleeds into the eternal state. That's the premillennial view of things. Very popular in American evangelicalism. The postmillennial view is that God will, from his throne in heaven, he'll work things together to where the church grows in its strength and its, its impact. The Puritans largely held this kind of hope. There are different versions of it, but ultimately, the gospel would have its reign, more and more people become Christians, and it would look like the world was having a bit of a revival towards Christianity right before the final coming of Jesus. So he was coming after that. They don't say it's a thousand years necessarily, but a period of time. And they would take this passage and say, see, there's some death mentioned in there, like we read, and so there's some of that, but then there's also the, the no more distress, no more pain, and so it's a picture of something God's going to work in the here and the now that's going to be different than what we've seen. Jesus will do this from heaven, and then he'll come post-millennium after to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. The problem is at the beginning of the passage, it says these are the new heavens and the new earth, and then there's an order to it. So the order couldn't be exactly right if that view were right. If you got me in a corner, by the way, I would probably like that view the best, but don't hold me to that. The amillennial view is the easiest view. Sorry, everybody. I know you're all thinking, he's going to get to the amillennial. That'll be the right one. They always mention the right one last. Not necessarily. It's just, honestly, the easiest one to make sense of, because it the questions that are difficult to nail down with the terminology or the imagery, we could just say, well, that's symbolic of what's going to happen in the world to come, eternity. And, and I don't have trouble with that. That makes sense. There's difficult passages. In it. It's hard to understand why there's mentioned death here. I think it's because it's supposed to give us a sense that there won't be the interruption of death. At the end of the day, the amillennialist doesn't think there's a particular millennium. We're, we're kind of in the millennium. Jesus came, 
and his kingdom is beginning and things won't necessarily get better. That's where it's different from the post-millennial view. It could get worse, probably will get worse, and then he'll come back. The beauty of our confession of faith is it doesn't nail down any one of these three. It just nails down what the Scripture's clear about. Jesus will come back, and there will be a final judgment. Those who are in him will be resurrected unto eternal life. Those who are not in him will be resurrected unto eternal death. And heaven will bear the descriptors we're reading in this passage for eternity and forever. That much we know for sure the Bible lays out, and that's where we're unified. And we say it all the time when we say the different creeds that will come again to judge the living and the dead. I love what, I love what Oswald says um, in his commentary. And speaking of the kingdom of God, Isaiah amalgamates several aspects of it that may be chronologically distinct but are spiritually identical. In other words, Isaiah's just given a picture of one big victory and ultimate picture of peace and harmony for the people of God for God, and he just lays it out. Um, and that's what he's doing. He's not concerned about the time frame. Think about this. When Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple or the, of Jerusalem, he also predicted the end of the world. But they don't happen at the same time. So God sometimes gives prophetic pictures to his prophets, and it's just giving you the whole picture and what order it happens in, only God knows. Stages of the unfolding of the kingdom of God and of his Messiah seem to be telescoped together in the prophet's mind, according to Oswald, and I think he's right. Now, look at what heaven, the heavenly state, eternity looks like. Verse 21, verse 22. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. We don't live in a country, heaven at this point anyways, to where people come in, um, they win a war, they beat us, and they take our stuff. We have not experienced that, none of us in our personal lives. Maybe if you've come from another country, you've seen it, because it happens the world over. So that was a constant anxiety. They're facing the occupation of Babylon. They become used to insecurity. They're used to disappointment, working for something and losing it because someone else took it. No more watching the stuff that they work for get pillaged or stolen. Verse 22, the second part. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Uh, there, there's some forever pictures here of blessing that come to the people of God compared to trees. That's interesting because trees were the living picture of longevity that people understood. The mountains were a picture of longevity uh, for the earth, um, but for people, trees, because the people knew how long they lived. Um, records of trees that existed when their great-great-great-grandparents were around were still there. They identified the landscape. And so trees, to be called this or likened to this, would give them a sense of longevity that was so eluding them in their life and their experience. Verse 24, a beautiful picture of the harmony between God and his people. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. You know what this is different than? Remember, bow your heavens and come down. Feels like they're not, the feeling is he's not here. He's saying here, before they call, I'll answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Direct, harmonious communication with God and his people. Verse 25. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Many commentators say this is a, a picture of the, the return to the pre-fall state. And certainly there's truth to that. How literally to take this exactly, I don't know for sure. 
but it will be harm- those pictures that conjure the images of violence and so forth, they'll be turned around. Uh, and the serpent, notice, won't have a change in his demeanor. There will be something remnant from the sentence he received at the fall, the snake that is. So there's this remembrance in one sense, but there's also this renewal and this change, this complete makeover. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. One more wise statement from Oswald who writes well on this passage. He says that elements of several conceptions have been combined into one. To try to say that the composite is one thing and not another is to miss the point. Suppose the author were talking about a coming existence that is absolutely unlike anything we know here, which is true. He would describe it to us in what way? Only analogous terms that would be familiar to us. Total harmony in creation, harmony prevails, something that we do not know now. Bottom line, what will heaven be like? I can't tell you a lot about it, but I could tell you this. Heaven will not have sin. Heaven will not have sin. Think of all that sin has caused. Heaven will not have the heartbreak that comes from sin. There won't be broken relationships. There won't be mistrust. There won't be angry outbursts. There won't be jealousy. People won't let you down. You won't let down people. There won't be the impatience that comes with this life, the disappointment that comes with this life. Heaven will not have the shame that comes with sin. Heaven will not have the guilt that comes with sin. There won't be sexual sin, impurity, all the heaviness of the guilt that comes with those things will not exist in the eternal state. Heaven will not have the strife that's caused by sin. This means harmony, no worry or anxiety. Heaven will not have sickness. Heaven will not have any scary doctor visits where you wonder what they'll tell you next what the test is just revealed and what treatment awaits that they don't even know if it'll do the job. There will be no more bad news about cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's. There will be no more MS or diabetes or slip discs or hip replacements or arthritis, no aneurysms, no strokes, no autoimmune diseases or other illnesses. Doctors cannot figure out what Paul says will resonate finally to us, but it is written, what no eye has seen No ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven will not have accidents. There will be no car crashes, no paralysis, no falls, no physical lameness. In heaven we will not be in a constant state of physical decline where I have to keep holding this further and further back because I cannot see it like I did when I was preaching here 20 years ago. No glasses, unless you want to wear them because they look cool. No car crashes. No diminished capacities, physical or mental. We won't be lazy. We won't be lacking for fruitful, satisfying things to do. The biggest misnomer I hear from people who who aren't reading enough of their Bible, quite frankly, is that heaven would be boring. It would be the farthest thing from that. We won't have anxiety about not having enough. We won't have greed about getting more. We will actually experience satisfaction about material things. We won't have a wrong relationship with so many of the material things that we have. Food won't be our master. Instead, it'll be a delightful and satisfying thing. We won't have destructive relationships with things or stuff. We'll be skilled stewards or caretakers of those things. The new earth will not be subject to our fallen caretaking any longer because we'll tend and keep it perfectly. We cannot imagine the resources the earth could produce if it were operating at full care capacity. 
There'll be no wars to fight, no reason to fight. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more terrorism in heaven. A bright, vibrant, and physical new earth, free from sin, suffering, and death, and brimming with Christ's presence, wondrous natural beauty, and the richness of human culture as God intended it, so says Alcorn. Finally, words of another spiritual that struck me. Oh, what a beautiful city. I love the simplicity. These people read their Bibles, and they just sang about what they heard. Twelve gates to the city, hallelujah. Three gates to the east, three gates to the west, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, making it twelve gates to the city, hallelujah. My Lord built that city, said it was just four square. Wanted all you sinners to meet him in the air because he built 12 gates to a city. Hallelujah. Who are all those children all dressed up in white? They must be the children of the Israelites because he built 12 gates to a city. Hallelujah. Who are all those children all dressed up in red? They must be the children that Moses led. The Lord built 12 gates to a city. Hallelujah. When I get to heaven, I'm going to sing and shout, ain't nobody up there going to take me out. Because he built 12 gates to a city. Hallelujah. A glimpse of heaven or the eternal state or glory, whatever, however you want to term it, the consummation of the kingdom. It provides us with at least three things. First of all, it helps us prioritize our days now. It helps us to make decisions or understand what's temporary, what's eternal, and what matters, where we should spend our time. It helps us with so much when we put it into perspective. A glimpse of heaven also accomplishes aiding us in dealing with the pains and the miseries of this life, because they are relatively light and momentary. Eternity is the forever state, and for those who are in Christ, it will be perfectly satisfying and glorious. Finally, It gives us a picture of the absolute majestic sovereignty of God which promotes obedience and draws us into worship and praise of him. Paul wrote, and I conclude with, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, with this small, small glimpse of what is to come, please cause us to order our days accordingly. Please keep us from fruitless pursuits and vain things. Keep us from caring too much about the things that moths and rust destroy. Lord, with this vision of the heavenly state, give us comfort in our afflictions. Impress upon our hearts the temporary nature of these sufferings and difficulties. Finally, Lord, as we see you with complete power and authority with whatsoever comes to pass, give us comfort and security in your plans for us and for all things. Give us thankful and obedient hearts with this glimpse of your consummated kingdom. Cause us to sing praise to you who sits on the throne. In Christ's name, amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals. 320, we'll stand and we'll sing verse 1 and verse 2.
as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.